Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you all for coming out on what's become an extremely cold evening. And um, I'm Jackie Troy. I'm Director for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. Um, I'm in the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research's portfolio. And um, it's my great privilege to actually be um, launching our journal, <laughs> our journal. It's a collaborative effort of the people at this table and my wonderful colleague Sally McNichol. Stand up, Sal. <laughs> who's um, used to work with me at IATSIS um, and we did the journal called Australian Aboriginal Studies if anybody has read that journal as well so she's done a magnificent job in getting this together but it's a particularly wonderful moment for me to be launching a journal um, that's about us as Aboriginal peoples from all over the world and also all the other peoples who are involved in Indigenous research, all our supporters, colleagues, friends, family, um, on the land that is the sovereign land of the sovereign people, the Gadigal people of the Sydney area. Of course, the Sydney mob were the people who were first impacted upon by the invasion by the British in 1788. And they welcomed the British in many ways um, and supported them and looked after them, not realising that actually it wasn't just a, a short stay and um, that it was actually something that was going to go on forever, and it has. Um, and to the credit of all the peoples of the Sydney area, who go by lots of different names now, all the clan names are starting to come back into use, which is a wonderful thing. I just met a, a new friend who's a Wabagul from a bit north of us here. It's wonderful to hear our, our, our names being used again, and this is something that's really going on in Sydney. And why I'm, I'm saying it's a wonderful thing is that this journal is particularly about identity and about all the different kinds of identities that we, I guess, engage with as Aboriginal peoples all over the world. Um, and also the ways in which people um, also deny us our identities and our heritages. So this journal is actually, I'm hoping, a bit of a... I'm going to use that word intervention, but I mean an Indigenous intervention in the academic world. And I'm sure that the Gadigal mob on whose country we are on now would be really pleased if they were here, the people who were first invaded, knowing that we were actually taking forward an Indigenous voice into a place like this, which is really such a white establishment institution. But it is also a place of learning, of philosophy, of um, understanding, of arts, of sciences, you know, whatever we can do as human beings, somebody is thinking about it here at this university and doing something about it. This is what the people of the Sydney area were about too. They were in, um, incredible people engaging with the environment, 
living a lifestyle completely um, self-sufficient, obviously, but also crafting the landscape. This whole area used to be a kangaroo ground, as we understand it, um, and it was a place that was actually designed by the Aboriginal people who lived in this area. Um, they made sure that the country looked the way it does. Um, well, it doesn't look like much of it anymore. There's a little bit of it at Victoria Park, a little bit of the swamplands and a bit of the open grass, but... Um, this area used to be a very rich place for people to uh, live, to thrive, to conduct ceremony, to, um, you know, to hunt, to have fun, to have families, to talk in languages that we don't hear every day anymore, but we're beginning to hear coming back again. The Sydney mobs are bringing the languages back as well. Um, so it's a, a richly Aboriginal place. So I, I think... It's a fantastic thing for me anyway. Um, I'm an Aboriginal person from the Snowy Mountains, but I grew up in Sydney. Uh, my mob are Narugu, my clan is Nyamich. And um, I feel it's a, a tribute from all of us to the resilience of the peoples of Sydney. So I guess that's my acknowledgement. And I would now like to also acknowledge my colleagues in this enterprise. Um, Dr. Michael Adams, Uncle Mick, I haven't seen you for a long time and it's wonderful to see you again. Um, we work together at the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies where Uncle Mick led a whole lot of amazing research projects, particularly supporting young men and, and older men. But men's health was one of the um, particular themes that Uncle Mick um, was engaging with. Uh, our men all over Australia have suffered for a whole lot of different reasons um, and it's um, very important that we give them the attention and the honour that they deserve. So, um, and Adam Getsey, Dr Adam Getsey, who is um, an artist and a scholar, um, a philosopher about the arts, a performing artist, um, a great colleague of mine at the University of Sydney. I've only been here as a professor for two and a half years. I did a first degree here back in the early 80s, but um, Adam's helped me very much. Um, he's one of the collaborators. It's not an easy thing to be a non-Aboriginal person working in um, Aboriginal scholarship, and Adam's one of the people who keeps that going and um, doesn't always have an easy time for it either, so he'll be able to share some of his thoughts on this tonight. And Adam Hill, wow, Black Douglas. Um, <laughs> I, uh, this, this image, this is Adam's amazing artwork, um, Closet Curry. Um, ain't nothing closet about you, brother. <laughs> curry through and through. Um, however, there is that white bone, but <laughs> so, there's the white ass there. But, so um, this image, when we were looking for a way to sort of... Um, I guess project this idea of what it is, what, what is Indigenous identity, uh, world Indigenous identity, what is it to be Indigenous? Um, Adam Getsey said, um, well, my mate Adam Hill is uh, really someone who's exploring this through his art medium. And when he showed us this image, which is a self-portrait, as I understand it, no doubt um, Adam will talk a bit more about it, but uh, it's got it all. Um, it really... It, to me, on every level, not only is it a gorgeous image, so it's probably the most beautiful journal in the world, um, it's, it's, it questions everything. It's got every bit of strange symbolism 
and also affirming symbolism um, about being Aboriginal that any image could possibly bring together. And uh, I love the fact there's a bird in there because everywhere we go in Australia, every community seems to have some special bird. For us in the mountains, the snowy mountains, it's the currawong. And when the currawongs go down to the low country, as the winter comes on, the grey currawongs go down, we know the winter's coming. And then as the, now it's summer is coming, the currawongs go back up to the mountains. They're not stupid. Um, so um, everybody has a bird. So I will um, stop at this point and I want to say that we're very keen through the talk tonight. And there'll be some food coming at about 7. We go on till 7.30 tonight, but if people are feeling peckish, it's pretty late. There will be some food coming along too. Um, and please feel free to jump in and comment. Yeah, I think that's what we all agreed as a panel, that um, it's a collaborative event tonight as well. Um, and so I might begin by handing over to Uncle Mick, perhaps to start us off with some of your thoughts on... Um, this evening's theme of gatekeeping. Thank you, Jackie. Um, I thought I was coming along to just be part of the, the launch. I'm not talking. I'm actually in transit from going back to Perth. Uh, the Health Infonet celebrated 20 years of operation. Yesterday we, we did a gig at uh, Parliament House. Um, and it was good because we had Minister White come and do it. But the Health Infonet, if you, a lot of people don't, un, don't know about it, it's a, a clearinghouse and it's got a lot of reports on Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health. So any um, material you want, you could, you could get it off there. Um, yeah, it's, it's available. A lot of uh, people use it. Um, and they get a lot, lot out of it. It's, it's helped a lot of people with, with their reports, PhD, um, any research that they've done. They've used it as policy development as well. But going back to our journal, um, it's a great pleasure to be part of it. Um, when Jackie and Adam started to talk about it, we, we um, had a few discussions uh, to and for the thing and wondered how, how we will get it out because as part of um, the research agenda that I, I've been involved with men's health, it's been hard to get a lot of uh, traction from that and this has given me not only uh, a chance to reach out to other men throughout the world um, and doing publication with them, it sort of opened it up for us to search wide, widely around the globe to get people to be part of our, um, our executive or editorial, um, but also just be partners of it. And I think that for us as Indigenous people has opened it up pretty wide and, and we could... Um, do what we want, we control it, we make those decisions. Um, we've got a couple of rig-ins, but it doesn't matter, I mean, because they're, there, they're, they're supporting us. And that's what it's all about, is that we, as people, were able to 
to work together um, and share our stories. Um, and I think the uh, journal itself has got a, the first um, edition has got a lot of good stories and a lot of good starting points. And I think the second edition is just about ready to go and probably the third one. So from the, um, the interest we get from around the world, especially in um, New Zealand, Canada, the States, Australia and other places, it's, it's given us um, good scope to get our stories out there but also good scope to work with other people. Yeah, thanks, Uncle Mick. So um, that gives you a bit of a way into, um, I guess, one of the main purposes with this journal was to, as Uncle Mick said, to actually give um, Aboriginal people a forum to publish on a really wide range of subjects in a multidisciplinary journal that we, is international. Australian Aboriginal Studies, which is the journal that um, the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies created many, many years ago, is really based, focused on only Australia. So there wasn't actually an international journal that just focused across all disciplines on Indigenous issues on any subject at all. And in our first journal, we've got a range of um, publications that we also have uh, a lot of input from community. So that's one of the things we wanted to do too, was to publish works that it's very difficult to get published, where people want to actually co-publish with the community members that they've actually been doing their research with. That was a sticking point we had with Australian Aboriginal Studies, um, surprisingly. Um, so that's something that we're encouraging, and also new scholarship, early scholarship. So in our first journal, we have articles on... I mean, we're not handing out copies, and we don't have copies to sell, but please, if you're interested, um, there's flyers here. We'd like you to go online and have a look, and it's available through JSTOR um, if you're at the university. So, um, so we've got articles on, um, from the Noongar of Western Australia, southwestern Australia, um, using Noongar intelligence to better understand coastal exploration. Um, we've got ethical approaches to research, Ngapachi Ngapachi, finding Indigenous ethical ways to do research. We've got an article on cultural identity and practices associated with the health, being, health and well-being of Indigenous men, Uncle Mick. Um, we've got a, an article on, um, from the Caribbean to the South Pacific on cultural hybridity. And we've got um, Indigenous community radio, um, responses to incarceration in Western Australia. And then we're encouraging people to put in research projects and reports. And um, so it's, it, at the, the first journal had a reasonably broad spread and we're very keen to continue that. So in a sense, this journal was designed to be um, a way of pushing back against the kind of gatekeeping that goes on with academic journals. It is a peer-reviewed journal, um, a truly academic journal. We're hoping that it will get ranked highly. Um, it's from Penn State Press, which is a very highly ranked press. And so it got a very good start. And our idea is that we give voice to people who are doing things that would 
not normally find an easy place to get published. So that's, our, I guess, in a sense, it's our, as I said, our intervention in the scholarly world to um, get an academic Indigenous voice out there. So, um, Adam, over to you as my... Well, I might, I might actually hand it over to my partner in crime, um, uh, um, Blake Dougie, and for, for you to, to initi initiate us into, the, into this uh, devilish image. Okay. Firstly, I uh, acknowledge that spirits of this land here and all the spirits that are sitting amongst us tonight along with yourselves. And this is a measurable honour to be the cover boy. If you can't make it onto Art Monthly, then hey, just come along and ask your mates and <laughs> get onto a cover of something else and, um, or um, GQ or whatever. Um, so let's talk a bit about the painting, get that out of the way so we know what we're looking at. And that's that first and only self-portrait. And unfortunately, I don't know where, the, when it came to putting the cover together, um, I couldn't find the, the painting had sold some years prior, so, and I never had a really good copy of the image. So we went with what we had, and I must say it turned out extravagantly well. It's very clear. And so uh, what I decided to do at the time was talk about identity and, and um, what you faced with emerging into Aboriginal art or being in Aboriginal art today which is one of the da most dangerous political fields there can be. And uh, so here we've got myself styled up in body paint in ochre, and the ochre is the percentage sign, so people are always asking what percentage Aboriginal are you, and that, um, then that causes conflict amongst your Aboriginal peers in entering anything, because nepotism is rife. We were always tribal, and we will always throw poison spears at somebody else that might be gaining from um, something before the other people are. And so uh, there's the percentage signs as I go into war. I stylize that beautiful shield into a love heart because as you um, try to pursue uh, activism of, as a voice and whatever, you cop a barrage of attack. So you've got to deflect those and but try and do it with as much love as possible nowadays. Otherwise, nobody likes to listen to you talk. Like Noel Pearson. You're, you're uh, quote, quoting Che Guevara. He said the revolutionary is done with, with, with love in his heart. That's it. Exactly right. I adopted that Magpie is um, it's a beautiful bird. It's common from where we grew up, but nothing to do with spiritually except the fact that um, my mother was white and dad was black. And so I amalgamated that and I'm the product of that. So, um, but then what's slightly obscured, maybe tastefully, maybe um, as a censorship act from Sydney Uni, but um, the big balls on the escarpment which is what it takes to, push, to be an activist um, in the current uh, situation within the colony that we preside as the Commonwealth of Australia. So um, it can be a dangerous thing, as many of my peers has, have suffered by winning major art prizes and literally having the KKK phone them up or email them. So um, it's not just that. It's all the layers. You put it all together. I just tried to make it as happy and... Um, uh, oh, the grass trees were often a... Um, a symbol, a metaphor for male spirituality and manhood and um, what you need to do when you go into battle. You need to stand tall. And um, that's coming from an era, 2000, 2010, colloquially became the Adam Hill flat bottom cloud era. What's most important about the metaphors in this style are those clouds because at that point I was using those clouds as a metaphor for government. So government is a false ceiling in the sky on this continent and the flat bottom clouds remind me of a false ceiling in the sky. Government is white and puffy consistently 
and it casts an ominous shadow on us for a period of four years, um, unless you're really unlucky like Tones and get kicked out in three. And, uh, and then it floats away and then the next government comes in and does the same thing. So that was a very important metaphor for those, those years. And I'll wind up as an intro with that. The sun, uh, grandfather, grandmother, moon. There was always a big, big sun, big moon in that era of paintings. Thanks for that. And um, generally, this is kind of a perspective of the pathway in the foreground. Uh, either there were roads or, as you can see there, a uh, little dry creek bed going off into the... Uh, it's based on uh, country I grew up on, Burrabrongal country, which is Darug country, which is um, uh, Penrith to Richmond and um, Lower Blue Mountains. And so Glenbrook Gorge, uh, spent a lot of time in, beautiful place, only 50 minutes from here, it looks like you're in Kakadu. And uh, so it's kind of based on that image. But those little um, vanishing pathways was always a metaphor for uncertain future for Aboriginal people or an uncertain past for those who are discovering themselves. And it's titled Closet Curry, yeah, as you might have noticed. Adam, uh, Jacqueline was quite delicate when she spoke about your anatomy when she introduced the image. Could you say something more about it and also about the title of the work? Um, well, firstly, um, my ass is always white. I don't spend enough time on the nudie <laughs> beaches. And so, um, you know, I get the tans, uh, tanned up dark in summer and you end up with a white ass. So it's a pretty good um, depiction. And occasionally white socks. I do a lot of work with kids in schools and from, from bald headed little babies in daycare centres up to, up to senior kids in high schools. And, and um, uh, somebody asked me recently about all the work you've done with you know, thousands of kids over the years. Do you remember any particular incidents that stood out? It was a daycare centre and it was summertime and I, I was tanned up and not quite as beautiful as you, but um, I was tanned up. And I had, uh, I had the socks happening because I was doing a lot of riding and running and whatever. And so when you took my shoes and socks off, I had the white, you know, socks, socklets happening. And this dear little one in the front of the row says, um, when I ask for a question, how come you're Aboriginal up there but not down there? <laughs> so, um, and a colleague of mine who works for the same agency, wonderful Monty Pryor, from, beautiful um, man from, from Brisbane, um, he's got, uh, you know, white palms and he's really dark. And um, the little ones asked him how come his hands are like... He says, because that's how I was standing when they spray-painted me. <laughs> so, um, uh, anyway, that's... Uh, and the, the Closet Curry, the title, um, it's, it's about uh, coming out to a certain degree in, in terms of um, finding, a, finding a substance of your identity late. You know, when your grandmother's stolen at 12, put in the Kutamandra, um, and your dad flees from that kind of behaviour from your original area, which is Kempsey, Mid-North Coast, New South Wales. And your father comes away to make a better life for his son and he hides out in the burbs. Uh, you, you don't grow up in Penrith in the 80s being celebratory of your Aboriginal culture, nor did you dare mention you were gay um, uh, or whatever, you know, anything that was other. And so uh, you don't kind of... You get to university and the aunties that were looking after me there, Auntie Jean South and in the Durali unit, Western Sydney there, they just, they were the ones that said, you know, you walk forth, boy, because you, um, you're here to do a job and uh, if it's art, then you make sure that works, you know, and you make sure that you carry the, the uh, momentum of your ancestors and your spirituality, you know. So in, some, in, in essence, until you get to that point of maturation, 
it's somewhat of a coming out. That's what gets you in trouble in the black community later on. But we'll talk more about that later, won't we, Jack? Well, I, I suppose all the themes here are, are sort of are working around um, gatekeeping because when uh, Jackie and I discussed um, this this launch, Jackie did, just didn't want a, a sort of uh, a cask chardonnay and uh, put the, the 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 journal in your face type affair, but actually to actually have actually something with some kind of discursive grunt. And it's sort of uh, it, it, the word gatekeeping seemed to be the sort of obvious and almost the only choice. In as much as um, in the the closet curry, you'll see that um, uh, Dougie's uh, tribal markings are percentage points. And there's always the issue, and, and you had one of your major shows, which was called, uh, um, uh, what is it, Not Black Enough? Or is it, yeah, Not Black Enough? Um, so is this always the side of, 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 of legit legitimacy? And, of course, this strikes heavily at home at me because, you know, I'm a, uh, I often like to say it's a very old joke that my, uh, my son gets really bored with, but when I'm travelling around the car and uh, there's only the disabled, I'll say, well, I should park in it because I'm white, male, middle-class, heterosexual and educated, so I should park there. Um, and and uh, I, I do remember I had the privilege of, uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the quad, a couple of uh, years ago, I was in the Verge Festival and I was the token white man uh, talking about this in terms, I'm not racist, but there was a talk from the Verge Festival about three years ago in which I did talk about um, my experience working with Dougie. We've been working for over 10 years now. <clears throat> and uh, there's a kind of reversal in the art world in as much as uh, while um, things go chugging along in uh, the white male sector and, this, and Trumpism is going stronger and stronger, we've just got a kind of little caricature of Trump, Trump in, in tones, as you'd say. Um, but, you know, the, uh, um, Malcolm's not short of a quid either. Um, but... Uh, uh, but in, in the, the visual art world, it's a kind of, kind of strange kind of a world in reverse. It's a bit like uh, those colour negatives. When, you know, if you remember how they used to appear when you used to get a colour negative, that's the art world because it, you go, you'll go to any, of, any festival, any biennale and whatever, you'll see this kind of neoliberal representation that simply does not exist in the world. And there's something quite, in, in the contemporary world, there's this kind of addressing of, uh, of minorities and so on it's become a kind of critical point, and this is a critical issue in Aboriginal art I know as well, in which a kind of liberalism is kind of played out as a kind of pantomime um, in the outer sphere while everything really remains the same. And in fact, it's become chronic in terms of the cultural sphere in that you actually play out your li liberalism in its kind of, in its innocent visuality, in order, in fact, to, make, to, to allow things, in fact, to be worse, if that makes sense. So in that regard, I actually said in the art world, well, I'm black because I have no interest whatsoever. And I think that the, the, the issue with gatekeeping here as well, getting back to the sort of more academic side, is that uh, you know, anyone in this room who has something of substance and rigour and of interest in this room is, is welcome in this journal. But I also um, reflected in, 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 in the times when... I started working with, um, with Jackie and I got the privilege to be introduced to some of her mob, including uh, um, Barry, who's not with us, who, who wrote the lion's share of um, our uh, editorial, which is our sort of manifesto. Um, and I, I ran into a, some series of, of, of critical problems in my um, professional life and I was reminded by Jackie and, and Barry of a certain breed of white men who... Uh, sort of lives with black men and how they're also discriminated against. 
and uh, that there is a certain kind of genre of person. And I have to say that uh, it, it didn't alleviate the hurt, but it certainly made the transgression that I was subject to, I wore it like a badge of honour. And I, I suppose one of the things we've talked about, this is, we've include, this is about inclusion. We've talked about this, this constant gatekeeping in, 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 inside the communities themselves, whether it's, it's good and it's, it's bad points. Uh, the, the, the very, very tricky problem of um, mixed bloods, miscagenation and whatever, and inheritance and legitimacy. I'd like to put something else out there so that it's, you know, so far it's pretty warm and fuzzy and we've been pretty polite. And one of the things that from my point of view, as a white man, um, I had an experience where I was watching Q&A a few weeks ago and uh, from some nervous reason, I can't remember a name, which is why I've written it down, it was at the Melbourne's Writers' Fe Festival. And her name was uh, uh, Laurie Penny, if you remember. Anyone see that Q&A about two weeks ago? It was at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And Laurie Penny is a, a bright young spark. Obviously, I looked at a Wikipedia page and she's done some very good things. And she's a feminist activist in the UK. And she was given first dibs on the speech after Tony did his little, little rant. And, uh, and as the introductory speaker, she paused and she said, first I'd like to acknowledge um, the original custodians and the people of this place. And, and they said, she said the names. I hope I can pronounce this correctly. And I went into apoplectic shock. Um, and my partner who's here, she, she had to hold me down. She had to sort of stay on, on, on the couch. And I, I, I sort of started to convulse. And, and this is what I'd like to put out here is that this welcome to country idea... Um, while the um, Aboriginal peoples are still not recognised in the Constitution, it is a preliminary measure, no less than in Aboriginal art. Uh, it was a preliminary measure. Was Aboriginal visual art was the first major thing to give Aboriginal peoples visuality, vis uh, visibility and traction within the broader community. Now, as I've mooted earlier, it, 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 it arguably is working the opposite thing. It's, it's a pantomime of protest, so things can actually get worse or be the same. And the issue I had was that just because you're an activist and you have cachet in a various series of areas, that doesn't give you license or confidence to actually speak on behalf of people you not only know nothing about, but with whom you have nothing, no investment. You haven't spoken with them or for them or side by side with them. And so what I'm, what I'm throwing up here, and I'm doing my own gatekeeping here, because I, I, because I, I have a very, now a very troubled relationship to this kind of loose idea of uh, welcome to country. So I, th I throw that out there. Um, I just wanted to throw a compliment into that one there in that um, how much it hurts to see that uh, the variations of um, what seem to be somewhat um, professionally or traditionally sound orchestrations of a welcome to country per se, where the greatest uh, honour is to see somebody speak in language on their country. And so... That's troubling me immensely with people who proclaim to be local elders of the Sydney region doing Welcome to Countries. And uh, when you witness the aforementioned one and then you witness the latter, it's very hard to swallow. And so it's just quite uh, distinct what you said. So, 
Hi, uh, Sam's my name, and I've been involved in Aboriginal education a long time, another white fellow. Uh, look, it's a problem, a big problem. It became an even bigger problem, welcome to country, when people get paid, right? And in New South Wales, there's a, there's a rate that you, when you're at a university, you might get someone, you know, a, a local elder to come and um, uh, there's a, a payment and so there's uh, that uh, jealousy, etc., that was mentioned before uh, comes into play. But look, um, it, I see it as a tiny contradictory step forward. The welcome to country, acknowledgement of country, it, you know, it, it sort of, it, it, it's so obvious that sort of bullshit about recognition in the constitution, uh, yeah, Aboriginal people have been there, oh really, yeah? Um, and so the welcome the country, even though it can be very, um, you know, grit your teeth and scream, um, in the, some of the organisations I work with, white organisations, um, we, get, we do that acknowledgement, there's usually no other Aboriginal person in the room, but one of the ways we um, uh, sort of uh, go further is we, we monthly meetings, right? So every month, say it's June or July or whatever, we talk about some important Aboriginal milestones that happened in that month. Uh, this is all easily available online, that sort of timeline sort of stuff. And so we talk about some of the you know, deaths in custody or... Um, uh, handback of Uluru, etc., etc. All these things that come up, and it's a way of uh, opening out that what this welcome to country means and what it means to be an Australian. Um, I was actually just talking about the idea of um, welcome to country and acknowledging country earlier today as I throw um, queer events for people of colour in Sydney. Um, and I was wondering then do you have some sort of alternative to what I should offer instead because I want to be respectful to yeah, the original owners of the land just as a question. Hello, my name's Willow. I just thank you for that question. I think one of the things that we've done welcome to country to, to introduce was that there's been no Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander ceremony in this country. It gives a taste of ceremony. And the premise behind it is that non-Indigenous people start to understand that there's a ceremony to different ways that we interact with people. Don't forget that. It may be that it's being looked at here today with gatekeeping and looking at it and looking, questioning the different processes that people use. But we hope that that develops, that young people, black and white in this country, start to understand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, we have a way of being, a way of doing and a way of knowing. And welcoming to country is a small part of a big ceremony. And that's the thing. There might be stuff that's wrong with it, but the purpose for it to happen is about acknowledging that we are the first people of this country and we do have ways. Yes. Um, and my main point here was um, I was pointing to someone who was an English coloniser who was also a visitor using her activist credentials 
and then um, so it means if you're an activist in you know feminism and young activism means you can you can you suddenly have a pass to 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 to, to it, an entree into all of this, which I find enormously offensive, and I, and I think that I, I think especially uh, you know we can revisit this all of us. Um, white, black, and, and in between, when, when uh, indigenous peoples are in the constitution. But at the moment, in, in, it is my, I am of the strong opinion there does need to be a gatekeeping where people who do not identify with indigenous peoples and, and do not have a direct investment should shut up. Um, I experienced recently something that speaks to what you're talking about, what everyone's talking about. Um, after living for a little bit in Mutujulu in Central Australia, I the first thing I did when I came back after a year was attend the Defying Empire um, Triennial in Canberra. And the room was packed full of, you know, the usual people that you would see at, at, at an event like that. And um, Malcolm Turnbull opened it. And so the theme of, yeah, Defying Empire and seeing Narkham Turnbull standing up there and before he said anything, I couldn't say for sure from memory, but I think before he said anything, he spoke language immaculately, like well-rehearsed, lengthy, without like contextualizing it or anything. And then he didn't explain and he went into some other kind of description of connecting it to multicultural Australia and just taking the, the limelight away and you just heard as this was happening, the old people, the artists from, that I'd seen out in community not some weeks earlier, were being sort of wheeled in by art centre managers. And it was such an absurd scenario and you could just hear it, the penny drop with everyone who was Aboriginal in the room as well. And I was just wondering what you would think of an example like that. Um, perhaps I could make a comment on the use of language. I think it's... Um, so I'm a linguist and um, one of the things that I... Yeah, one of the things that I've spent most of my own academic career doing is working on reviving and maintaining our languages, um, particularly for this Sydney area and down to the southeast. And actually, um, Turnbull kind of got the love because um, the Nunawal mob in Canberra have been um, particularly very recently working very hard to. Uh, I guess find a way back to speaking their language on an everyday basis and he got in touch with um, IATSIS not long after I'd left and asked to be coached in how to speak Nonawal and he used um, the language to launch his Closing the Gap report and the Nonawal themselves um, who were involved actually in coaching him were very pleased that he was doing it. So it's a very interesting point you're raising and I think where we're going to with this is um, I guess who has the right uh, to use, and Willow has also raised this, um, it's important that our cultural artefacts, our way of being as Aboriginal people is acknowledged. So our languages are acknowledged, our ceremonies acknowledged, um, you know, the things that I guess are the overt, obvious things that make us Aboriginal in the, in a, in the way that um, um, Dougie was talking about his image. There's a whole lot of cliches in here, which he's deliberately put in, um, that mark you as an Aboriginal person. And, um, but when someone starts using our languages as the way you've described it, as a cliche, he spoke in Yongamata, Turnbull up at Gama Festival, 
Um, and again, um, very good. He's obviously got a very good ear for languages. And um, Galaroy Unipingu was very pleased. And all the Yonga mob who were in, uh, it was the sorry business time, of course, Dr. G had died and everybody was in mourning. But his use of language touched and really affected the Yonga people that were present. Um, but it was a dialogue with them and everybody else was confused. And in fact, at the Gama Festival, most people were walking around quite confused. There were a whole lot of corporate people from all different, you know, Telstra, National Australia Bank, um, all completely confused really about what was going on. And it was just a bit like, it reminded me once of when I was in um, Israel in Jerusalem, which is a bit like, um, I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone, but it, it, it can't, that came across to me as religious Disneyland. And this was a bit like Aboriginal Disneyland, um, the Gama Festival. It, it wasn't meant to be. Um, and the, the Yongu mob, of course, didn't see it that way. Uh, but I think the way people were there, a sort of voyeuristic, um, was a very interesting experience for me. As a southeastern Aboriginal person, I, I don't have a lot of practice that I can overtly use um, to mark myself as Aboriginal and it's a very painful experience um, to I guess have to assert your Aboriginality. I acknowledge um, you know in the not too distant past um, colleagues even in this room have had to go to court over um, you know the experience of being challenged because we're the wrong colour. I mean, since when did colour ever make you who you are? I just find that flabbergasting um, to think that... Um, so if I was somehow... I had all my skin burnt off, as some people tragi tragically do have in terrible accidents, does that make me less of who I am? You know? So I... Um, it's not... It's what I am and what I assert about myself. And in Australia, fortunately... One of the things we talked about in starting this journal was um, who can claim identities um, and how do you do that? And we were thinking about that woman in the United States. So 2015 we were having this discussion and there was that woman, Rachel, um, who was um, known to be an activist as, a, as an African-American person who... Um, actually when challenged had to reveal that in fact she had no you know, genetic heritage at all. Um, cultural heritage either, it was something she'd learned as she'd grown up. She'd grown up with brothers and sisters who were adopted who were from that kind of cohort. But, um, but then it's destroyed her life. And there was somebody who was actually, from what I could see, um, doing a lot of good. You know, she was actually an activist, a supporter, um, and the mistake she made was to assert an identity that um, is not acceptable to a wide, the wider world. Um, I was thinking about another man back in the early 20th century called Grayal, who asserted an identity as an um, Iroquois, oh, I think it, Ojibwa, but anyway, Canadian North American indigenous identity, and he became a great environmental activist. And all his work that he'd done in his life after he died was completely erased in everybody's memory because he was found to be a traitor to his identity. He wasn't actually indigenous North American. So everybody forgot about all the stuff that he'd done as an environmental activist. So, um, 
transraciality it's a thing now you know people are transgender they're trans all kinds of things is there such a thing we even thought about having a special issue that looked into how people assert identity and what identity actually means in different conditions because that's in a sense who has the right to welcome people to country or acknowledge country who has the right to perform ceremony um, do the Yongu have the right to be the all things Aboriginal once a year at Gama to everybody who goes up to be part of that festival. So, um, yeah, we, we want to explore these sort of, I guess, uh, provocative ideas also about what it is to have an Indigenous identity. Um, and one of the things that uh, my uh, um, uh, um, student of mine, who's, who's also an editor, a review editor in the journal, Janelle Evans, um, uh, pointed out to me a corrective which is a sort of a universal in um, in all indigenous uh, peoples all around the world and uh, it's the heart of Malcolm X he said that you know before 1788 we didn't know what black was and I think that that something really needs to resonate because the issue of black is not necessarily color um, and uh, that that's that's and it's 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 uh, innumerable things which uh, we don't need to go into and I'm sure that uh, everyone um, can understand that. Uh, but the other, the, the other interesting discussion that I had was, um, and I was caught out, I don't know whether I told you about this story, Jackie, is I was having a lengthy discussion with one of what I, what I call our founding fathers of the journal, Len Collard, who's a colleague um, in, uh, well, UWA in Western Australia with Mick um, there. And uh, I made some kind of um, what I realised to be a very gauche statement. I said, oh, well, as one of the editors, I'm, I'm very pleased to be named third um, by not being not the Indigenous. He said, what do you mean? He said, are you either with us or you're not with us or you're half with us? He said, you know, you're either with us and you're Indigenous to somewhere, aren't you? So why do you want to be third? Are you with us or half with us or not with us? Where are you? And, and I, I was kind of slapped down and it was a kind of revelation, a very nice, you know, kind... Um, inclusive way and it really sort of opened it was it was it was a, a beckoning hand um, but it sort of said well you know you are with us or you're not you know you don't be half with us and we don't really we don't really need your humility and uh, that was also a defining moment um, for me now, I think I think it's a good discussion that we're, we're having but I just want to bring it back to the theme and I want to thank the brother down here or um, clarifying, you know, gatekeeping for us has been there for a long time. And, and even now, people come along and try to ensure that we're doing the right thing or they, they've never given us the opportunity before to, to be out there. And I think that with the journal that we've done is from the community-based Aboriginal peoples uh, mentoring and having the say in it. Whilst it's um, has to have a based on the academic level to, to be, um, what do you call it, peer-reviewed, um, substantial because it's gone through um, a well-represented uh, publication like Pennsylvania uh, Press, we have to have that, but it's given us the opportunity to be our own gatekeepers. 
to make sure that what we write is coming from us, not being monitored or um, told by other people what, what we should be writing. We write it, the editors have a look at it, and they say yes or no, but they converse with us in regards to that. And that's why I think this is a powerful journal that, you know, we want people like yourself to come and write with us. Um, and that's why with Adam, it's, it's, he's been with us all the time um, it, from the start. And we've, it hasn't all, always been a smooth road. It's, we've had, you know, potholes here and there and a bit of corrugation, but we've got to come out together with it and work together on it. And I think for this, for us, it's, it's given us um, that, that paved road that we go on. We're not, not going to have Pitchman Road all the way. We're going to have paved road. It's going to, going to have some ups and downs, maybe rain come, um, bugger it up again, and we, we'll just keep going. And that's, that's the way we look at it. When, when we sat up in the room up there and we, we sort of nut, nutted it out on what it should be and what it has to look like, um, and then brother came along to do the painting and that, we agreed um, together and we, we spoke it out, we spoke about it, we looked at it and then we, we made the decision together. And that's, I think, a form of our gatekeeping in regards to making sure that things are going to happen for us in the way that we want to do it. That's right, and in fact, that's exactly why we called it Ab Original, because it's it's from us. It's uh, we are of the original, and um, it's uh, a, a journal that is meant to. I love the the way you've said that it's our form of gatekeeping. Um, doesn't mean we're going to keep everybody out, but we are going to filter things through an indigenous eye, which is an unusual thing to do. Um, it's, uh, it's very difficult being in an institution like this. Uh, in a sense, on a daily basis, your identity is questioned and your authority is questioned because the authority doesn't come from us, usually. It comes from um, a Western model, a white model. Um, white's such a clichéd word, but it, it's, a, a, it's a, a model, this university and all the other universities in Australia, all of them, are founded on, their scholarship is founded on something that is, it's actually not Indigenous, um, even though, of course, people within the institutions are um, from all kinds of Indigenous backgrounds. There, other than in New Zealand, I should say, and um, now in Hawaii, there are very few places in the world where Indigenous people actually have their own academies. Um, so it's a very, uh, in a sense... Um, my own role as Director for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University is meant to give the University more of a, um, a way to develop its scholarship that pays proper attention to um, Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous issues and themings. And this journal is its not owned by the University, in fact. It's, um, it's sponsored by the University, but it is something that exists of its own accord. So it doesn't belong to the academy, it belongs to all of us. And all of you who may um, 
you know, submit journal uh, articles. Uh, we want people to review, also to review um, exhibitions, not just review books. We're interested in exhibition, exhibition reviews and musical event reviews. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to be involved a bit with a a band called The Preachers who uh, did a crowdsourcing, this is the world of scholarship now, crowdsourcing to raise funds to re-edition a journal, I, uh, sorry, a small book I did many years ago about the language of the Sydney area, if you like the language of these Gadigal people here, but for the whole of the Sydney Basin. So our, our back to the points before, our knowledge and our languages, our cultural forms are all now out there, if you like, in popular society. They, they're kind of belonging to wider Australia. People are starting to own aspects of what we are as Aboriginal people and as Torres Strait Islander people as well. And this is something that we're interested in to uh, explore in the scholarship in this journal as well. Yeah. Um, I, I'm also aware that we're coming to... where This is more towards question time, if that's possible. But I just wanted to... Uh, be, I'd really... I uh, wanted to just take the time. Um, you, in, in, at the rear, um, made the question about, um, you know, what should we do? And you, you made, uh, is a preamble, you said it was, you were at a queer or um, queer um, gay lesbian conference and so on. And this... Uh, no, 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 it was the people of colour. Okay, so queer, queer. So the point being here, this is another thing we really need to bear in mind and it really behooves me, us, to all say this in terms of gatekeeping. I just want to say um, <clears throat> just how deplorable I think it is that this vote is happening in terms of um, gay and lesbian marriage. I am personally ashamed that it's happening, that, and I'm ashamed at the kind of um, at the kind of advertising and the kind of presumptuous skullduggery. This is a form of apartheid that we have, and I want to and I want to say for my own behalf, as if I hadn't, if I had the time, means, and money, I'd go on a sabbatical and leave Australia for a couple of years because of this. So, yeah. I guess um, you wouldn't want to be a you know a, a lesbian lesbian in a lesbian marriage and being Aboriginal at the moment. Or looking for a disabled car spot. Um, and let's throw the constitutional change into that as well. Um, no doubt there are a few other anarchists in the room that might be um, of the wit and the mentality of understanding that it's... Um, look, how long do we have to say uh, it's a small step forward or it's a big step forward? Um, Aboriginal people are here now. You know, they still need to step forward. But uh, who are you stepping forward for? So uh, we're finally being invited to the governor's table. But um, how long did we have to crawl there for? Brother Clinton Pryor walking all, all those kilometres to, to sp see the tokenistic prime minister who spoke in language to open defying empire. Just uh, brush him. So written in the constitutional change, why are we written into their law? Um, we've had a few questions and comments. I'd like to open the floor. Yeah, sure. This is a really naive question, but I don't really... I'm not a student at the uni and I don't really know anything about this until I saw it on, on Facebook this morning and I came because I was interested in um, understanding the concepts of what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I'm an Awabika woman from the Hunter Valley and I study at Eora College, so I've been there for 10 years doing art. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, I learn learn a lot. And uh, what I wanted to ask was, um, I think I've just had a complete mental blank. Um, Looking for the red line. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Oh, do you have to be a student here to submit to that journal? Absolutely not. <laughs> We're interested in um, contributions from anybody. Um, as I said, the journal articles are peer reviewed, so it's a, a, a usual academic process. But um, as Uncle Mick said, we're very keen to have um, Indigenous um, content from um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scholars, uh, wh wherever you're a scholar, whether it's at the Eora TAFE or at the University of Sydney, or you're a community member engaged with someone doing some research and want to have it published. So. Um, I encourage you to, yeah, to contribute. Okay, thanks. And then I just wanted to express my opinion on the uh, welcome to country and acknowledgement to country thing. I don't know if that's what we're still talking about, but um, uh, I was taught that it doesn't, uh, that a welcome to country needs to be done by the people from that country and um, that an acknowledgement to country is can be done by anyone. Uh, it doesn't particularly matter which words are used as long as it's heartfelt and that there's a genuine connection and a desire to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of that land and the ancestors past and present. Um, and as Aboriginal people, we can feel that straight away if it's genuine and that it's not doesn't then just become token if somebody's intention was genuine to acknowledge the traditional owners. Um, I don't see how that can particularly be a bad thing. The, the example I was using, this particular person was clearly acknowledging herself. I understand that, yeah. I understand what you're saying. It was just uh, the sister up the back there asking about that. That's my opinion on it. Hi. <clears throat> Hi. Thanks, everyone. Um, just because the conversation is still going, I'll jump in as well. Um, so I sometimes speak at or organise events in things that I'm involved in, and um, and I get really ups. Well, I, realize that. I, I I dislike the kinds of acknowledgements of country that are very pro forma, just like the the one sentence that everyone says. Um, and I've kind of made it a, a recent um, habit to try and give acknowledgements of country that involve more information and try to um, address some aspects or some history or culture or something relevant to the place and the people and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not indigenous, so I have no connection. I have maybe a little bit of investment through some things, but let's say I don't. Um, and I guess for me, part of the way I understood it in a kind of colonialism 101 kind of sense of just that, you know, if, if one of the key dynamics is the erasure and making invisible of the indigenous history and people of this country, then the acknowledgement is about foregrounding um, the indigenous present and past and future of this country and, and why Australia has a black history. So I guess for me, I, I, found, I kind of feel that acknowledgements are a powerful tool on, on that sense of making visible what has been made invisible. Um, but then I guess the gentleman at the back reminded me 
and us all about that it, it based on an actual practice, which obviously is not what I'm, I'm delivering. So I guess my question is, after this rambling, is do, we, do, the, do the panelists see value in that acknowledgement in the sense of foregrounding and making, in making visible the indigenous present of this, of this continent or, and or is the issue that it shouldn't be kind of mimicking the welcome of a country which is a specific tradition and maybe it should happen in a different, in a different way kind of thing, I'm, if that made sense. Thanks. I don't think there's any one specific answer to that. And in fact, I think it's a really good question. Um, the whole um, business of welcomes to country and acknowledgements to country have, have went through a period, I think, when Andrew Bolt was particularly excited about who was and who wasn't Aboriginal. Um, he also got very excited about uh, welcomes to country and a whole lot of dialogue started to go on about these practices. But as Willow was saying, you know, they... It is something that people have always done. You know, we've now got a time depth of 65,000 years in this country. But it does... Um, <laughs> so that's a long time of people welcoming and acknowledging each other. But um, I think, you know, these are the sort of issues that are, are worth investigating. Um, what What is it to be Aboriginal now and into the future? What kinds of practices do we want to take forward into the future with us? What do we want to be into the future? And... And, um, you know, what is it to identify as Indigenous and what is it to engage with it if you're not Indigenous? How do you, how do you engage with Indigenous Australia? Yeah. Questions? Um, I just want to say that I've seen them all, uh, all types, gammon ones, like really badly gammon ones. And um, I've seen the proper ones, of course, at the government house and whatever, um, so-called proper ones. And I was in tribal ones, and I'm putting the blame on the Queen's first visit to Australia. And I'm pretty sure that that's where the concept began, because all the little black kids, all the little Anungu kids had to turn up in white shorts and shirts and carry flowers and all this sort of stuff. And that became a big thing, you know. It's uh, important other people enter um, tribal communities, and there's a long way, long way back. It wasn't so much a walk in the country. You ever hear the bona fide elders of Redfern? the long-standing members of the block um, talk about why they didn't take the top job to do what we see today. And um, the fact that um, certain smoking ceremonies are considered a charlatan act. And uh, back to Uncle here, talking about the um, economic gain. You know, I'll give you an example and to compliment what you said earlier and to tie it all together, you get asked to do a walk in the country. And so I just listened to what they got to say and what budget they got to offer. And uh, I say, well, I, you know, I charge X amount. Oh, that, that, that's a bit steep. I say, well, that's what Uncle beep, beep charges. Um, and they say, oh, w would you play a bit of Dig as well? Not, not, not knowing, by the, by the way, not knowing that the Dig is, um, is, is indigenous, actually, strictly speaking, to about, uh, what, um, about a radius of um, what... Uh, uh, what, uh, 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 what, a thousand square kilometres in northeast Cape, you know, that's uh, not knowing that either. Look, um, thanks for that. And I wanted to ask another sort of area. 
um, question. Um, the, and you, Jacqueline, you were talking about um, the future. Uh, look, the future is climate change. And um, it's not a happy future, uh, the way it looks at the moment. And uh, that's all of us. Yeah, indigenous people will probably are already copying it um, first. And in some ways, uh, in the Arctic, in the Pacific, etc., uh, and in Central Australia, um, this is um, uh, not only are they copying it first, but they're also adapting first. And they're using, I, from what I understand, using a lot of their indigenous knowledges, uh, uh, you know, to adapt to this, to this, these things that are happening to them locally. And so I just wanted to suggest, I think it's, it's, it's something uh, that unites all of us, we're all in this, and it's uh, not looking good. And, and well, I guess the main thing I want to say is a lot of uh, people who know, or maybe they don't know, but they hope that indigenous knowledge is, is one way of properly responding to this um, uh, crisis of climate change. So. I was wondering if people wanted to talk about that a bit. Interestingly, Sydney University's got a, a whole um, focus now on planetary health and has only very lightly engaged with an Indigenous view worldwide of what planetary health might be and what we might contribute um, to that discussion. So I think, you know, the, the biggest problem for us... Um, in, in the big discussions about what the world is facing is that we are consulted last on almost everything. So back to um, the, the dis, you know, discussion about gatekeeping, a lot of um, indigenous knowledge tends to be put into a sort of pigeonhole of, well, that's indigenous knowledge and it's a bit out there and it's a bit, you know, it's a bit different and a bit, you know, it's not scientific and it's not really going to... Um, fix anything, but again, I go back to well, the Aboriginal and, and the Tor well Aboriginal people in Australia and the Torres Strait Islander people have um, literally weathered um, 65,000 years of extreme climate changes um, without having to change a lot about the technology or um, the way in which we live in this area that's been a different landmass over that period. Um, and who's actually taking that seriously? Uh, so I think, again, we're hoping through at least getting our scholarship out there and in its, in its many different forms, not just, um, I guess, uh, researchers who've been given very large grants to understand whether diabetes is, going, you know, is, is due just to one particular... Um, uh, set of circumstances or whatever in someone's life, but also to bring together a range of knowledges and a range of practices to to consider what the world's big issues are as well, not only for us as Indigenous people, but other people as well. So I think that's a really important point and something we'd really like to be exploring through this journal. I think we had a... Up there. Uh, just want to say congratulations on the launch of the issue. look forward to reading it. But I had a question... Um, for Adam regarding something that you said earlier about the uh, representation of Indigenous peoples in the art world in Australia. And I just wanted to make sure that I understood correctly that what you're saying is that there's a perceived over-representation relative to population size and therefore that entrenches existing 
an existing power imbalance. Have I understood that correctly? And then there's something that I'll, um, I probably will also need to dovetail again with um, Dougie here, um, which is to do with, um, well, I'll take, um, and you can speak to this, I've been asked, but, you know, you can um, move on from that. But um, uh, Dougie, about, um, what, six years ago, moved away from what he called the Adam Hill brand, which was this. And he did a very major work in the, which is in the National Gallery of Australia. That was a kind of, I understand, a kind of watershed moment. And that's a pretty tr stringent work of people, of these, um, uh, it's, it's a teacup and there's the, there's the um, Queen, Queen Elizabeth's face on it. And the children are, are plunging into this teacup in the way that in hot days people would go into the silos and, and water containers and so on. So it's, it's a pretty acerbic sort of work. And um, one thing that he, he, he moved to discuss when he started doing more um, hip-hop work, street work, community work, and he said, I'm, I'm saying, well, why did you do that? We were having one of our get, um, toxic get-togethers. And, uh, you know, and, um, and he said, well, I'm, I'm really wary of the Adam Hill brand. And I said, what do you mean by that? Because everyone goes up and says, oh, well, here's Adam Hill doing his stuff. You know, here's, here's a commentary. Hey, hey. And, and uh, from my understanding is you didn't really want to be part of the um, proper now crowd, which is the Richard Bell, Vernon Archie and whatever. And really what basically this is, is, is it becomes a series of sort of, um, and it, uh, I'm using, using this word operatively here, literally performing monkeys again. And so you have a curator um, who does, you know, you've got the traditional, you've got the Anwaré, and you've got, then, then as you're walking through the exhibition, then you see Vernon, you go, oh, get ready for it, okay, trenchant critique, yep. Okay, wow, ooh, that was tough. And then you move on, then you move on. oh, Anwari, oh, spirituality, great. So it just becomes this kind of punctuation point. And so what actually that happens, it's a kind of a, it's a, a negative catharsis in, in which you feel that you're actually participating. You're a participant in, 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 this, in this crisis and critique, which all the more actually then uh, allows you then to disavow it in everyday life. Okay, that's my understanding. You can speak to that. From hopefully, I, I listen to you. I do listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much spot on. And I was going to, going to say, and who gets to take the cred for allowing the public to have that spiritual feeling? But the Aboriginal curators who are given the massive budget to go up against uh, Chinese consortium, who uh, were their artwork sold for at Lawson's or Menzies or Sotheby's, so they must be feeling really pumped. Uh, whereas the New South Wales artists miss out for the next 10 years because they just blew the budget on an Emily that's worth 3.8 million. And also I was um, uh, doing a project that didn't end up getting up to do with regional Australia and one of the people, this was in 2012, and a curator of a, a quite a remote, well, regional town in, uh, just in Western Australia, not near, near um, Perth, and I've got my notes. I'm sorry, I don't, have the, I don't have the name of the peoples, but these particular indigenous peoples of that region, um, the the no, the the the, cura the curator of this regional gallery said that uh, she's trying to really kind of represent them, because the problem is is they they do not look quote unquote Aboriginal enough. 
Okay, so that's, that, that's, that's again not wide enough and says that these, these people are very un, unrepresented. It looks quite a lot like outsider art and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, it, it looks actually too West. There's too many Western corollaries for it actually to have some kind of traction. So, so once again, to answer your question is, um, and this is very typical, also, and, and this, is, this is part of a very diverse ongoing uh, kind of debate. Um, it's also to do with um, uh, other, it's to do with Muslim, Muslim women representing issues to do with the veil. Okay, we've, um, so, um, Shirin Nesat is a, is a, is a well-known example, but she's based in New York. And the question is, to what extent is then, then she being able to play out these kinds of things uh, in the name of Muslim women? And she is, she's a very good example because she's a very dedicated, serious and honest art artist. You know, I know her professionally. But the thing is that in terms of the kind of, of miasma that is the contemporary art entertainment world, it is this idea of participation is a very important point in which people feel they're a participant in a certain kind of predicament and then they get their catharsis within this kind of abstract miasma that then allows them then just to go home and, uh, you know, um, open the fridge and, and put, their, put their lean and tasty um, thing in the oven and turn on 1.20 minutes and then turn on, turn on Netflix and life goes on as normal. Thank you. Hi. Um, my question relates to a theme we have been spending a bit of time talking about tonight, which is uh, collaborations and the working together between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people um, as a non-Indigenous person, but also not a white person. Um, I guess my question is about ways in which non-Indigenous people can be part of the work to the sort of work that this journal tries to do, the sort of work that anybody who's invested in Aboriginal issues and Indigenous issues is trying to do and what the best ways that a non-Indigenous person, the best, the best elements in non-Indigenous work um, to help the fight in the best way possible. Maybe uh, a good thing to do would be to clarify where I'm coming from. So I used to work at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Canberra and I intended to continue to do that work up in Darwin soon. So uh, something that has been on my mind a lot is how can we avoid um, you know, paternalism, um, you know, speaking for and over Aboriginal people in the work that we do. Um, so if you can speak to a couple of points that we as non-Indigenous people can adhere to, to, to work productively. And if possible, I'd like to hear um, from everyone, and perhaps I could hear from Adam later. I'd, li I'd love to hear from the Indigenous members of the panel first, if possible. I think one of the best ways to do that is to partner up with someone, but also but also put your story there and um, negotiate with a person to have a look at the work that you're doing before you, before you give it up to us because um, all our editors and assessors are not necessarily Indigenous or Aboriginal people. Um, but that's why we're saying we want to work together so that if you had someone working with you on that, surely there's um, lawyers or other Aboriginal liaison officers in there that could work with you on that to make sure that what you're, you're um, putting up to us or presenting to us is um, 
on the right track. Um, yeah, I think that, that that's the best way. I just want to come back to old brother Ian in front. You know, young young fella. He's outgrown his, himself. Um, one other thing about uh, cultural knowledge, and I know, I know you're saying with um, environmental health it looks looks about a bit grim, but one thing that just I'll give you an example with fire management. How people have been turned from day dot. Because now, because scientists got hold of it and and it's been publicised up in the territory where they're going through burning, you know, it's, it's a big big thing. But yet, you got down the road here, you got a big bushfires going for a hundred kilometres, and they can't do anything about it. So why is it that indigenous knowledge is always put behind? until something happens. I mean, and that indigenous knowledge throughout the world has been unrecognised, unmentionable un, um, until scientific evidence is there. How, do, how have we gone from thousands and thousands of years till we come to here and we're still going? Um, yeah, well, I, um, I encourage you, if you've been working in an area that's um, got something to say about the Aboriginal experience, um, did you say the legal services? Yeah, uh, there's a lot to be written about um, the experience of people working in legal services, but also the issues the services are dealing with. And I think that you would have no trouble at all if you just ask amongst the people that you've been working with, the Aboriginal people, perhaps Torres Strait Islander people, others, um, you know, think of something to write about that experience, just even write about the experience. We're interested in also research reports which are not put through the same rigorous peer review process but are still considered by the editorial committee um, and that's one of the ways to sort of make a start. I, one of the research reports in the journal, uh, my colleague um, Adnan, who's from Pakistan, indigenous Saraiki, out of a conversation we began, I was comparing the ecology of his language, which is um, about 20 million strong and apparently extremely endangered because it's not recognised in Pakistan. It doesn't have a province. They're not people with a province. They're not regarded highly, so um, their language, they need to approximate to Urdu, you know, or speak Urdu rather than their own language. And I said, my language, which technically has no speakers at the moment, but people want to get the language back, Narugu, is more likely to have a future than his language. And so we write a, wrote a piece about that. And Atnan is not a scholar in the field of linguistics at all, but I think that's, some, that's the sort of thing we're interested to... Um, to publish too. So um, I guess I, I presented that it was published elsewhere and we've republished it in this journal um, to sort of encourage people to do that kind of thing. So I, I just think there are a whole lot of Aboriginal people out there and Torres Strait Islander people who really want their voice heard and if you're in a position to write with them, 
and support them in getting their ideas out. Our journal's the place for it. Yes, um, this question is for um, Black Douglas and for Adam Gexie. Um, so I'm, I know that you have both collaborated artistically in the past and currently still, and I'm just inter interested in that dynamic. But I'm also very interested in light of the discussions we've been having about visuality and reception of Aboriginal art in the art world, how your collaborative work is received and what kind of responses you've been having and and what kind of challenges you've had to face? Do you realise the can of worms you've just opened? No, no, you talk. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll get the kindling and, and make the first strike. And the, we, ever since we've known each other, we we're just on the same um, plate and about our kind of issues with the ultra-conservatism of Aboriginal art here. And so we ultimately had to look abroad and Adam thankfully secured the opportunity to show at the Aboriginal Art Museum of Utrecht with the show Bomb. And of course, if you um, got to see those artworks, it's you know, highly contentious and we basically held a, an anti-terrorism show. Uh, it fell at a perfect time when we were showing that that um, uh, it was the time when um, the king, uh, queen was stepping down from the throne and it was a colonial affair. And um, so we decided to, uh, you know, go to town on the anti-colonial. But of course, that goes against the grain because, uh, and we found it consistent back here because the Oz Council for the Arts won't have any tarnishing against their name of any, any sense. So... Um, you want to talk about gatekeeping, well, there's the, the big gate up there on Elizabeth Street and it's painted white um, and it's probably got some Tony Albert decorations on it. But um, it's, um, you know, something that we have to navigate around and that's just been a very hard time to do. But um, anyway, I think that's a little killing fire, so like, like I said, the inferno. I've I also want to go to Jackie, who was um, there at the exhibition we had uh, in March uh, early last year, last year, called the Most Java Race on Earth, and was held at the Lockhart Cultural Centre in Newcastle, which is so we actually used the Cultural Centre as a repurposed um, jail, and we used it for that for May. Um, and I think like, Jackie is outside to talk to that. I guess the only thing that I've been constant with the theme of tonight is that one thing we look on with sort of a, a little bit of irony to say is the extent to which we are not a black-black um, collaboration. So that uh, it's taken us, it's only now after about 10 years of collaboration that we've, um, um, that we've got a piece now in the Darwin Museum Art Gallery that has been taken as a donation, not as a, as a purchase. And so the, the, the positioning of us uh, in terms of this kind, which we've addressed in a lot of artworks, has been um, quite contentious. And, and we put that up, up, up towards to the, also the reverse racism of uh, white curators as well, who want show paintings. Do you think reverse racism actually exists? I've been called up on that, yes, I've been called up on that one as well. But let's, let, let's, let's call it, uh, let, let's, uh, I call it kind of pop stick or a kind of pie chart by race. And we don't fit into the pie chart by race. 
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.